Dear Lord, we thank You so much for the gracious kindness that You've shown us by giving of Your Son, Jesus, that we might know forgiveness of sin, that we might know You in personal relationship. God, this morning we invite You to open the eyes of our heart through Your Word as You speak. And that, Lord, You reveal to us the things that we need to deal with, that we need to confess, that we need to confront in our own hearts so that You can transform us into Your image. So speak to us now. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, the title of the sermon is Clash of the Titans. Many of you have seen the advertisement for that movie that's coming up here soon. And uh, You know, the Titans were simply um, what was believed in Greek mythology to be 12 gods that were over different areas of, of society. And uh, they were actually overthrown by a whole other set of gods, by Zeus and the Olympians. And you know, it was a very polytheistic understanding of the divine. And as we... Think about that. I think it's interesting because the Titans, that word, the etymology of that word Titans literally is means to strain or to perform. And that was kind of the mentality that was understood both in the time of Elijah in the 8th century B.C., certainly in Greek mythology, that you were to try to appease the gods and certainly not hack them off and to do what you could to get them to work with you or even work for you if at all possible. So in a culture that understood or at least believed that there were multiple gods and multiple deities, we see, uh, we see our, our world today is really not that much different. Oh, we're a little bit more refined and so-called reformed. But even today, many will take on the mentality that, you know, there, there are multiple ways to get to God. That's really polytheism if you stop and think about it, or at least... Uh, one of these terms. Let me give you some terms to help you understand as we read through this story and we understand even our culture today. First, there's monotheism. We're all fairly familiar with that term, mono meaning one, theism. It's the belief that there is one God and one God only. And that you wor certainly worship one God, but you believe there's only one God. So uh, monotheism, that's what we are. Uh, that's what Islam would be. Uh, so we continue here. So monotheism. Then polytheism, the belief... Uh, and the worship of multiple gods. There are multiple gods that can be worshipped. Certainly what Greek uh, mythology uh, believed and, and taught, and many other religions as well. And matter of fact, as we look at these others, they're really forms of polytheism. The next one would be one that maybe you're not as familiar with called monolatry. Monolatry is simply this. It's the worship of one god, but the belief that there, there possibly are other gods that exist. Uh, but I'm, I'm going with this one. Uh, this is the, the God that I'm going with right here. I'm not saying there aren't other gods. And, and incidentally, in our culture today, that's, that's really probably what you would call it when people say, well, I, I just I, I'm going with Jesus, but I'm not saying that everybody else is wrong. I, I realize there's probably multiple ways to heaven, uh, but this is the God I'm choosing. That's monolatry. That's, that's, that, I think that would be a good modern understanding of monolatry today. Uh, now, the next word is henotheism. Um, if it makes you feel any better, I learned about this one this week. Uh, henotheism, okay? 
Henotheism is the worship of multiple gods, but there's one particular god that's elevated to a higher ranking, or it's the favored god. This is the this is kind of the chief deity. This is the one that I'm I'm going to primarily worship. And now now there may be another time in my life where uh, maybe I worship another one, but at this point in time in my life, this is the favored god. This is the highest ranking god in my life as I see it. This is the highest ranking God for my culture at this time, at least, okay? And I think that would be a good description of understanding uh, Baal, as we call it. Now, probably a better translation or pronunciation would be Baal. But since we all grew up calling him Baal, let's just call him Baal, okay? And so as we read this story, I think it's, underst- it's good for us to understand a little background of what the people were thinking. Now, let me give you a couple other names. And better, by the way, these are listed also in your bulletin, uh, so you don't have to frantically write these down and wonder what in the world were those. Uh, but Elijah, we talked about Elijah a couple weeks ago. He's the last functioning prophet, and he's the spokesman for God at this time for the nation of Israel. And this is around the 8th century B.C. Uh, Ahab regarded as the most wicked king of Israel. And that's really saying something when you go back and read how wicked some of the other kings were. Uh, but he's the one that through his marriage to, his marriage to Jezebel, who was of the Phoenician culture of uh, Tyre and Sidon, um, where really Baal worship was most prominent through his political marriage with her, uh, they institute uh, pretty much the permeation of Baal worship uh, as well as Asherah. And so she has brought 850 prophets in, 450 for Baal, 400 for Asherah, uh, in order that uh, they might make their culture, the Israeli culture or the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, uh, might make them people who worship Baal and participate in uh, really more of a polytheistic understanding of religion. And with Baal being the chief, remember that term henotheism? the chief god of which they would worship. And then Baal, the chief deity of Tyre and Sidon, uh, Jezebel's homeland, also known as the storm god, Hadad. So it was believed that he uh, was a fertility god for sure, but he more specifically was in charge of the thunderstorms, of the rain, and of the lightning. As a matter of fact, some of the ancient um, descriptions we have of him was he was riding on a on a horse with a thunderbolt, or excuse me, a lightning rod in his hand. So the, the storm god, uh, Baal or Baal, as we have always heard it called. Now, with that understanding, um, I want us to start here in 1 Kings 18, remembering that what's occurred because of the worship of Baal, because Ahab has include, not only included, but favored the worship of Baal, uh, God sends His messenger Elijah to confront him and says, okay, you believe in Baal? You're trying to persuade the people to follow Baal? Well, here you go. He is the, he's the rain god. Let me just see about that. I tell you what, I'm going to send a drought into the land. And really, for the next three years, you're not going to see any rain. And so you see the compromise that has occurred in the culture. Then you see the confrontation of God by his prophet Elijah. And now, after that time has passed, we pick up here in 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. And after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Okay, it's been three years since he's pronounced that judgment. The drought has been severe. And now I want you to go, and I want you to confront uh, Ahab once again. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Now let's skip down to verse 15. Verse 15. 
if you would, in the interest of time. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, troubler of Israel? Now, regather yourself and think about it. Here's the picture. <clears throat> Elijah has come after a three-year drought. He's been hiding. They've been looking for him because they want to kill him. And Ahab and Jezebel are so uh, disillusioned. Uh, matter of fact, my only original quote that I have in life is this. Sin makes you stupid. Uh, their sin has made them so stupid that they think the reason it hasn't rained is because of Elijah, and Baal would let it rain if we would just kill Elijah. This is, this is his fault, and Baal is punishing us. Even though Elijah has come and said, look, I, I'll show you, Yahweh God is the one who has commanded that it not rain. I will show you who the true God is. You think you're, the power of Baal is powerful? You think he is the chief deity? So there's a direct confrontation. So we've seen the compromise, we see the confrontation, now we'll see a challenge. And so they call him, Ahab calls him the troubler of Israel. And, and what does Ahab, uh, Elijah do? He goes, let me tell you what's going on here. I'm not the trouble here. Matter of fact, he says, as he confronts him, he says, I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. We know that with Ahab's father, Baal worship was uh, instituted, not to the degree that Ahab is taking it. But he said, this is the real problem. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. The command of the Lord was, you shall have no other God before me. There is to be one God. Hear, O hear, Israel, the Lord God is one. And you shall love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. It was a monotheistic statement, their great covenant. matter of fact, Jesus says later on as he quotes from uh, that passage, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. There was a monotheistic uh, statement given to him. It was an understanding. Every good uh, Hebrew would quote this every day, at least once a day, sometimes, some of them three times a day. He said, this is an essence of who we are, but you have basically encouraged and led the people to worship the Baals. Now summon the people from all over of Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah and eat at Jezebel, that eat at Jezebel's table. Remember we said that she's brought them in. She's paying them through government funding. Uh, here he is. They, they've, they've been instituted as the priests, as the prophets. I want you to bring them to Mount Carmel. You say that this is the chief deity? This is the all-powerful Baal? I want to confront your most powerful God, your favored God. And so that's exactly what's about to occur. The challenge has been offered. And so Ahab sent word through all, all of Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. How long will you waver? The Hebrew there is, How long will you be so indecisive? Will you be weak-kneed? Will you be undecisive? How long will you waver? Make a decision. Uh, we see Jesus making reference to this same mindset in a Revelations chapter 3 when He said, I wish you would be hot or cold. Because you're lukewarm, I want to spit you out of my mouth. Make a decision. 
Quit being like Yogi Berra, the, the old coach of the Yankees, who said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. I mean, that was kind of the mentality. We're just not going to really make a decision. We're neutral. It's all good. We're not really sure. You know, yeah, Baal. You know, I mean, we, we, our forefathers came out of the desert. And yeah, Yahweh was good there. But now we're in a different land. And, you know, we don't, we don't really know. We really have to make a choice. I mean, we're all going up the same mountain, aren't we? Kind of mentality. And so... Elijah is confronting them and challenging them. And, and they're given the opportunity right here to make a stand, to step up. But what does the Bible say? But the people said nothing. What do you think say? We're not really going to pick a side right now. I'm just going to see how all this kind of plays out. Then Elisha said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Now, there are actually other prophets, but they're hiding or they've had to leave the land. He's the only functioning prophet. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us and let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God... And then catch this. Where will, we, where will you hear this later? And I will call upon the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, He is God. Now, God reveals Himself through fire multiple times throughout the Scripture. Uh, we've certainly seen it uh, with Moses and the burning bush. And so there are instances, not every time is this uh, the picture that God uses or is this the medium that God uses. Uh, but it's certainly one that... Uh, Elijah and those who knew uh, of the traditions of, of Israel would have been aware of. He said, but think about this. Here is the chief deity, Baal, of which Jezebel and Ahab have pretty much given their blessing, who made it the formal religion or are seeking to do that for the nation of Israel. And he's a storm god. He's the god of lightning He's the God of rain. So he's already been challenged by not having any rain. Now he's saying, I want you to go up to Mount Carmel, and I want, you to, I want us to have, bring all your prophets, your 450 paid prophets, and I want you to bring them there. And now the one who can produce the fire. Now, Baal, of course, he's the storm god. He, lightning, they had seen lightning strike before. They would seen the fire presented by lightning. This shouldn't be too hard for Baal. Matter of fact, this is pretty much a challenge on his home court. Baal, you get to be the home team here. We want to give you every advantage we possibly can. Elijah's setting it up for him. And then all the people said, what you say is good. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you, 450 of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and they prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Now, we're not exactly sure the time. Some say some scholars say 6, some say 9 o'clock. But whatever the case, it's, it's at least three hours, maybe six hours of time that they begin to pray, pray and to chant and to call upon Baal to respond. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response and no one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. So they begin to dance and they begin to perform 
for Baal, so to speak. Remember we talked about the titans, the, the, the etymology of that word means uh, to strain or to perform. So that's the way they're viewing their God. We're going to strain, we're going to perform, we're going to do whatever it takes to get Baal to do what we want. Because that's the way it works. We, we strain and we perform for Baal so that he will hopefully bless us, so that he will find, we will find favor in his eyes. And that's the way most religions actually work, isn't it? I'll do these things, then God, you, you do this for me, or, or at least don't do anything bad to me. That was the understanding of the gods at this point. And, and even today, some of us, quite frankly, if we're not careful, we can kind of make bales out of God Almighty because we think if we dance just right, if we, if we sacrifice enough, if we do enough, whatever it is that we do, and we can get God to do what we want. We, we do the formula, and then God will respond the way we want Him to. So ultimately, we're in control. Ultimately, we're kind of the bales, aren't we? Kind of see a reverse psychology that a lot of times we bring into our religion because that's the predominant way to think. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them and shout louder. He said, surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Some scholars say that when he said he's busy, he's out relieving himself. Um, many believe that he's addressing specific Canaanite myths about Baal here as he makes these challenges that the people would have understood. He continues on here and he says, so they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until blood flowed. It was believed that blood would entice the gods, particularly Baal. Now, uh, in Leviticus chapter 19, God had forbidden His children from, so, so to speak, slashing or cutting themselves in order to gain attention, because that was a pagan form of worship, a pagan ritual. But there's nothing happening here. They've slashed themselves. Midday passed and they continued with their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. So we've started in the morning. We've gone till noon. And now we've come to the evening sacrifice, which is probably about 6 p.m. So they spent the whole day. They started out praying and chanting. They began yelling. They began prophesying. They began cutting themselves. They've done everything they can. And nothing is happening. Nothing has occurred. And so... And then Elijah says this to the people, Come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. We're not sure if they had torn down the altar of the Lord or it had just been not attended to and had fallen apart. Either way, there's, a, there's an altar for Baal there. But the one for God or the one for Yahweh has lay in ruins for whatever reason. And he said, let's, let's repair the altar. Let's repair the altar. And so that's, in fact, what they do. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. It was the covenant God, the covenant relationship of Israel. And we're going to restore this altar here. And with the stones, he built an, an altar in the name of the Lord and dug a trench around it long, large enough to hold two barrels of seed. And he arranged the wood and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. 
you know, when I was growing up, if, if you heard this story as a child, you, you heard this before, and, you know, they took the water and they did that so that it would be sure that the wood was wet. Nobody could throw a match up there and start it, even though I don't think they had matches back then. But whatever reason, you know, we were told, they, you know, let's just make this a lot harder. And that's probably part of it, uh, certainly. But you know what else strikes me? This is a time of drought. There's been a drought for three years. And in a drought, what is the most precious commodity there is? Water. And what does Elijah say? He said, I want you to bring the most precious commodity you have. I want you to pour it out on this altar. I want you to pour it out. Now, don't go crazy with that. He didn't say, come put your children up here. All right? He said, take the commodity that you you most value today, and I want you to bring it to the altar of the Lord. There's a message for us today right there, guys. What is the commodity that you value the most? What is the God that you value the most? He continues and he says here, At that time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so that these people will know, O Lord your God, that you are turning their hearts back again. So the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, they've been praying and chanting and slashing themselves and everything else they can think of all day, at least nine hours, probably longer than that. And then you see this short prayer by Elijah. Oh God, for your sake, for your glory, because you've commanded me to. Answer. And then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. It's interesting how God, how Elijah calls God... And the fire is the mechanism, and it, it burns up the sacrifice. The sacrifice is provided, and it burns up that sacrifice. You know, you know it's interesting to me if you, and you don't have to go there right now, but in Luke chapter 9, uh, when incidentally um, the disciples are going through Samaria, I guess where this is in the area of, uh, in the area of Samaria, and they are on their way to Jerusalem, but basically the people reject them and reject Christ, and they get mad. And you know what they say? They say, Jesus, do you want us to call down the fire on these people? And Jesus goes, no. He rebukes them. You don't get it here. You're missing the whole point. Because we serve a God whom has provided the sacrifice to His Son. We serve a God whom we don't have to slash ourselves. We don't have to let our blood. He slashed Himself. He let His blood flow for us. There's not even another God in society that even remotely suggests that they would sacrifice themselves, that they would sacrifice their blood on our behalf. Every other religion is, how can I appease the God? What can I do for Him? We serve and love a God who has sacrificed for us, who's provided His blood for us, who, so to speak, has performed the ultimate sacrifice for us. He continues here. He says, When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, 
He is God. Then Elisha commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal, your chief deity, those chief priests and prophets. And don't let any of them get away. They seized them and Elisha had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there, according to Deuteronomy 13, in which they had been instructed before. And Elisha said to Ahab, Go and eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So we see the compromise of the nation. We see the confrontation. It's like God confronts us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then there's the challenge. What will you do? It's really an opportunity to take a leap of faith, to take a step of faith, to take a step of maturity. And often it means sacrifice. It means sacrifice of what I value, of my time, or sometimes my resources, <clears throat> the sacrifice of what I want to do and the confession of God as my Savior, Christ my Lord, that I might experience the power of God Almighty in my life and that He provides the provisions that I need. Great story. Great insight. If you think about it from this perspective, every one of us in here today come with some type of wood. We come to the altar today. Some of us just have the wood of religion we've been carrying around all our lives that we just say, you know, well, this is the wood I bring. I I just kind of show up with it. I I do the rituals, sing the songs, say the prayers. That's kind of it for me. Some of us, maybe our wood's wet. At some point, we just kind of got soaked. Maybe we got disillusioned by something. Maybe something didn't go well. Maybe we were to church and we didn't get to do what we wanted. Or somebody hurt our feelings. Or the pastor said or did something. Or maybe he didn't say or do something he was supposed to have done. And now my wood's just kind of wet. And so I'm just kind of off on the sideline. Maybe some of you, you feel like your wood's just kind of in ashes. I kind of got burnt at some point. God didn't come through with me. Matter of fact, I did the formula. I prayed. I repented. I gave. And then God didn't do what I wanted Him to do. It's because you're making God a bail. You're trying to get Him to do what you want Him to do. And that's not a God at all. If you are trying to worship a God that you can control by a formula, then He's simply a figment of your imagination. God Almighty is so much bigger than our imagination. There's not a formula that we can produce that gets Him to do what we want Him to do. Here's the only thing we've been promised, that if we repent and confess Him, He will forgive us. That's the only formula we really get, so to speak. I don't even know that that's a formula. And then we trust Him by His grace. We worship Him, as Elisha shows us. The real truth of it is we've been called to be lights. A picture of a fire that burns through our devotion, through our worship, through our lives as we give and share of the hope and the good news of Jesus Christ give you a great illustration. A guy named Dan Woolley who is uh, who was doing a documentary in Haiti when the earthquake came. He was in the Hotel Montana when the earthquake occurred. And he was in the, the bottom floor and actually in the basement level. And the hotel just cratered and caved all around him. Uh, broke his ankle. He had s- several cuts. And he was actually able to get uh, on his iPhone and there was a, a medical application and he was able to treat them. Uh, with just the clothes that he had to kind of stop the bleeding and to do a couple of things to kind of manage it. But after a day or so, he he decides, I'm going to (laughs) die. I mean, 
this is where I am. I'm beat up pretty bad. I'm still bleeding somewhat. And he decides, I'm going to die. So he begins to write a note on his iPhone to his family. He writes an email. that He can't send it, but he can at least write it and record it on his phone. And he writes on his phone there as a document to his children and to his wife. And he says, you know, I will probably have died by the time you get this, but I want you to know that my faith still holds. Don't quit believing. Don't quit worshiping God Almighty. Don't forget the Savior. I want you to know my fire still burns for Him. My heart still burns for Him, even in this time. He wrote that believing that He would die. And miraculously, three days later, (laughs) He has rescued and uh, has found. But, you know, the great challenge for Him, the great opportunity He had is when He thought He was going to die. When He he really believed He was going to die, and His faith was real in that time. It's a message that he's given to his kids that they will never forget. That my dad, though he was dying, his faith still held strong. His light would still shine. Hey, there's the testimony that we all want to ascribe to. To so let the light of Christ indwell within our lives that others may see the good works and glorify the Father in heaven. What about you this morning? Have you ever received the light of Christ? you ever received the grace of Christ in your life? Have you ever transferred your trust to what you could do or what anybody else says that you have to do to what Jesus Christ did upon the cross and confessed Him as Lord and asked Him to forgive your sins and come into your life and receive His grace and salvation? I want to invite you to do that today. If you would, let's pray together this morning. Dear Lord, thank You so much for this day and for this time. Thank You that, God, You're not a Lord that we have to perform for. You're a Lord who took our sins upon you. And it's through your blood. It's because you allowed yourself to be slashed and cut open. It's because you died for us that we know forgiveness for all who have transferred their trust to what you did for us on the cross. And believe in your death, burial, and resurrection that salvation has been produced through the cross. And so, Lord, we praise you. We give you worship. And we pray that we would let our light shine before men so that they see your glory. Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would draw them today. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.